I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Happy holidays, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the show, we have another double feature for you. Later on, we'll be hearing from Deborah Dash Moore of the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization about understanding Hanukkah and Jewish culture. But before we get to that, Hassan El Tayeb of the Friends Committee on National Legislation joins us to discuss the Yemen War Powers Resolution, misunderstandings about said resolution, and his thoughts on Senator Bernie Sanders withdrawing the resolution after speaking with the Biden administration. It is an important topic given the humanitarian crisis that Yemen has faced especially since the Saudi-led intervention in that country. So, without further ado, let's get right to it with Hassan El-Tayeb. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been wanting to speak to uh, for some time now. He's worked with Previous guests we've had on the show, uh, notably Dr. Anel Shaline on issues related to the Yemen War Powers Resolution. He is Hassan El Tayeb, Legislative Director for Middle East Policy at the Friends Committee on National Legislation. How are you doing today, Hassan? I'm really well. Thank you so much. So, Hassan, if you could, I guess the place I wanted to start at was. Uh, what exactly is uh, the, the Yemen War Powers Resolution? And then we'll get into the latest developments with that resolution. But maybe for people that have heard uh, 
different things about the resolution or they may be misinformed about it. What exactly is it and what would it do? Yeah, thanks so much uh, for having me on and shining a spotlight on the crisis in Yemen. So the War Powers Resolution of 1973, otherwise known as the War Powers Act, is a federal law passed during the Vietnam era, um, the Vietnam War era. And it was intended to provide a framework for Congress's check on presidential power to use military force without congressional consent. Uh, it's got a few main parts. Uh, the president must get a declaration of war or a specific authorization from Congress before sending troops or, uh, or supporting foreign forces engaged in the hostilities. Um, you know, the, if the president initiate, initiates hostilities, uh, these can only last for 60 days and then it must be terminated, terminated unless Congress authorizes the continuation. Um, and, and basically, if there's no declaration of war, uh, you know, Congress can require the president to end U.S. participation at any time. I think it's important to also remember that under the procedural rules in the War Powers Act, these bills receive special expedited status that requires Congress to make a full floor vote uh, within 15 legislative days. Um, and that is really powerful because it allows members of Congress like like Senator Bernie Sanders uh, to force important votes and debates uh, you know, on presidents, the president's use of military force and congressional war authority. Uh, and that's exactly what happened last week uh, with the Yemen war powers. Uh, so what is this particular bill does? Well, it, it's designed to end unauthorized U.S. military participation uh, in Saudi Arabia's uh, war and blockade on Yemen. Uh, they, oh, quick, they, Hassan, um, not, not to interrupt you, but I, I want to stick on that point real quickly because sure. um, you know the thing that i keep hearing from some people and i think it's a complete misrepresentation of the work you're doing and the work of um activists pushing for the war powers resolution i keep hearing this idea that oh uh people are saying that the war powers resolution can definitively end the war in yemen no one is saying that though uh it it, it can end u.s participation but that's they're two different things and i don't want people to misrepresent at all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the United States can't on its own end a civil war that's devolved into a proxy war. Uh, you, you know, that's just not going to happen. We can support peace. Um, and, and there's a lot of things we can do here in the United States, but we have to get out of the mindset that the United States on its own can really, you know, achieve that objective. This is a, you know, a long complex conflict that's going to take you know possible possibly decades before there's actual peace and healing and reconciliation here uh, but the united states since the start of the war under the obama administration authorized um, you know you, you know the us military uh, to provide you know uh, aid to the saudi led coalition war effort we've given them spare parts maintenance logistical support for defense articles and warplanes uh, we've done intelligence sharing for uh, coalition airstrikes in yemen we were doing mid air refueling and uh, a gao report just let us know that we've authorized uh, the us government has authorized uh, almost 60 billion dollars in weapon sales and, and contracts and defense articles to the Saudi-led coalition's war effort. Now, uh, this bill has already passed, uh, you know, back in 2019, people might remember. And what the members of Congress at that time were trying to do was end specifically 
mid-era fueling of Saudi warplanes. Before they even passed that, President Donald Trump at the time, he said, wait, 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 you know, you can't tell me what to do. I'm doing it anyway. So even before they passed that, President Trump actually shut off mid-era fueling. Congress still went ahead and passed in 2019 SJ-RES 7 to terminate that military aid. And then in that uh, National Defense Authorization Act that year uh, for fiscal year 2020, they actually, you know, ended mid-era fueling and got Trump to sign it into law. And that's been the policy ever since. What uh, reps Jayapal, DeFazio, Mace, Schiff, Senator Sanders, Senator Leahy, Senator Warren, and now over 130 Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate and counting, we just added Rep Pappas uh, and a few other members of Congress on the bill. Um, they are now asking that we terminate also logistical support for coalition airstrikes, spare parts and maintenance. Now, these would basically go after the private contract uh, U.S. military involvement in, in the sustainment of these aircraft through private contractors. We're again, we're not actually saying private contractors can't do their thing, but the U.S. military cannot be involved in that. And currently that's the case. Now, another thing I just wanted to say is that there aren't airstrikes happening in Yemen right now. So, you know, what we're trying to do is now that the truce is broken down in Yemen, we're trying to prevent- Yeah, the truce was in, uh, real quick, that was back in, in the spring, right? Could you talk just briefly about that? Yeah, so uh, after, a, a, you know, a lot of work uh, by the UN and, and members of Congress and grassroots activists, uh, you know, uh, there was a big effort and the warring parties, uh, i.e. Saudi Arabia, uh, and the Houthis, uh, uh, you know, Saudi-led coalition, I should say, and the Houthis uh, agreed to some terms that there would be a nationwide ceasefire. Now, both sides have pointed at the other as saying, okay, you're the reason why this truce broke down. But uh, the Saudis and the Houthis, they both stopped the cross-border attacks. That means the Houthis aren't firing drones into Abu Dhabi or Saudi, and the Saudi-led coalition, they're not doing airstrikes in Yemen. That's positive. The Saudis also agreed to uh, ease import restrictions. Now, this is, you know, this is what it means. This is what it doesn't mean. Uh, it opened up Sana Airport for commercial traffic. So that's a, that's a very positive thing. They already had humanitarian aid coming in through Sana Airport, you know, uh, via the UN. But this is commercial traffic. So now, you know, civilians can leave and get medical treatment abroad. We've seen about twenty-five or so thousand people so far. Um, and counting uh, that have like, you know, came and went from Sana Airport. We also saw an easing of the fuel blockade on Hodeida and Salif port. Uh, it was like eight, you know, maybe like five to 10% of monthly fuel needs based on the UN commodity tracker was getting through. Now we're up to about 40,000. Uh, uh, sorry, about 40% of monthly fuel needs based on, uh, you know, UNVIM and, and, and this. The commodities are still not really getting through, like medic medical supplies, medicines, you know, opening up the economy. That's really not happening. Um, and, and so now it's, you know, it's been, you know, six plus months of that and things are starting to break down. The Houthis are getting more maximalist in their demands. They want to see a payment of salaries of government and security forces. Um, you know, the Saudi-led coalition, they don't want to ease the import restrictions any further. Um, now the Houthis are threatening to bomb, uh, you, you know, and have like launch drone attacks against oil facilities. 
and, and we're basically at a place where things are kind of breaking down. Jamal Ben Omar, the former UN Special Envoy for Yemen, recently told The Intercept, there's been no political process, no negotiations, or even a prospect of them, so all-out war can resume at any time. It's a very fragile situation, which is why Senator Sanders uh, and, and a grassroots coalition of now 100-plus organizations has said, we want to remove the possibility of U.S.-provided logistical support, maintenance, spare parts uh, for Saudi warplanes to conduct more offensive strikes in Yemen should the truce break down even further. So... Uh, the issue right now is uh, if the truce continues to break down, uh, Saudi Arabia could ramp this up again, essentially. Exactly. And uh, j just right now, though, um, with regards to Saudi Arabia, um, it, it seems like this may be the time where even they would want to see this wrap up now because, I mean, this has been going on for seven years. Um, so, I, I mean, yeah. the Saudis initially thought this would be a, a, a quick intervention and it would be over. Uh, so it, it has not ended up that way for Saudi Arabia. So this seems like an opportune time to try to get this wrapped up, this crisis, uh, which has led to, you know, uh, it, it's a mass humanitarian crisis, we should note, uh, for the many people. Yes. No, I mean, th that's what we've heard for quite some time, uh, that Saudi, you know, they 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 want to end this war. But, but really, it, it, that means different things to different people. For me, ending the war also means ending the blockade. For some people, they say, well, Saudi's not doing airstrikes, therefore they've ended hostilities. And, you know, I, th I think the blockade is a form of collective punishment. Uh, it's torturing the Yemeni people. It's, it's helping drive the humanitarian crisis. Not the only reason, but I think it's a, a critical uh, driver of the humanitarian crisis and the price inflation and, you know, the import restrictions and the lack of travel and medical evacuations. So, you know, that's kind of the question. What's this going to look like? Saudi Arabia also has other ambitions. They want to build an oil pipeline through Al Mahra. This is the eastern province in Yemen. They want to keep the Babel Mendeb Strait open to, you know, five plus million barrels of oil a, a day, uh, you know, through the strait. Um, and, and they want to maintain kind of dominance over, over this part of the, you know, the world. Now, Saudi Arabia, this has cost them a lot in money. They've, they've spent $100 billion uh, on fighting this war in Yemen. I mean, that's insane. And, and you, know, you know, on Iran's side, they're spending almost pennies to the dollar in comparison. This is really, you know, a, a Houthi-led, you know, operation. This is an indigenous kind of conflict that Saudi Arabia, you know, has gotten involved in heavily. And Iran has too, but just not to the same level that Saudi has. And they're, you know, but other than the financial piece, you know, they're not really paying a, a real price on the battlefield like the Yemeni people are. If you could, and I, I want to get into uh, Senator Sanders, but first, um, and I, I know you may not have this offhand, but what are some of the stats with regards to, you know, th just the hardship that the Yemeni people have had to endure over the past years of this conflict? Yeah, it's it's really sad. So, you know, at the end of 2021, the UN Development Program reported that, you know, 377,000 civilians had died in Yemen. And 60% of that was through indirect causes like lack of food, water, or health care. Uh, an, an incredible soul, uh, a toll on the Yemeni people. 
we've seen millions of children suffer from uh, acute malnutrition and that will have lifelong cognitive delays and mental health issues, you, you know, for generations. That's going to just impact, uh, you know, it's going to impact Yemen for a long time, even after this war, uh, in, inshallah, ends. Uh, we, we have seen cholera, millions of cases of cholera because of the lack of clean water and sanitation. We've seen, uh, you know, uh, uh, dengue fever, diphtheria. We've seen a whole bunch of different diseases that, you know, should be done with start to pop up. We don't even know the toll of COVID-19. The, the, you know, parts of the country aren't really keeping track, but we, we know that there is, you know, because essentially you've got 80% of the population immune compromised. So imagine a global pandemic ripping through a population with, with so many you know, uh, health issues. Right now, I think it's projected that uh, you know, Yemen in 2023, uh, you know, two thirds of the population, 30 million people, uh, two thirds of that number will be relying on food assistance for survival. So you know, in the Ukraine war and the inflated prices of wheat and grain uh, is just making the matter even, even more dire. So with regards to Senator Bernie Sanders, I, I wanted you to get into this and, and give your take on everything, because I, I think there are a lot of people uh, that jumped out immediately after Sanders announced he was withdrawing a war powers resolution on the war in Yemen, um, I believe this past Tuesday. Uh, and a lot of people said, why did he do this? You know, um, you, you know, has he betrayed the cause? I think you have a very different take on that than, than maybe some people who are uh, attacking Sanders right now. So, so what is your view on all of this and why he withdrew the uh, War Powers Resolution? You know, I, I keep thinking about, uh, you know, when you're doing something right, sometimes you're getting attacked by all sides. <laughs> um, you know, Senator Sanders is, is, you know, there's been critiques for like he should have forced the vote. And some people said he shouldn't have even tried because we're, you know, disrupting a fragile peace in Yemen. Uh, but sometimes when you're getting that kind of criticism, you're actually on the right track. Uh, what Senator Sanders did, uh, you know, you know, he withdrew the vote. Uh, basically, you know, he got a call from the administration who said, hey, wait a second. We have, uh, you know, a, a compromise that we're open to, potentially an executive order, some new legislation. Um, and we want to work with you to try to get this done. And Senator Sanders said, OK, well, you know, we could have forced the vote. I, you know, I think it would, would have been competitive. I don't know if it would have gotten the 51, um, you know, but Senator Sanders didn't want to roll the dice that night. Uh, and I, and I actually support that decision. I think, you, you know, if, if you have an offer for an executive order to terminate military aid, or at least a, you know, um, you know, a promise that, you know, there, we're going to have a negotiation about that. I think I, I think that actually puts us in a strong place. Um, now, if the administration and Senator Sanders can't come up with a compromise that's adequate, uh, you know, if if they can't, you know, you know, you know, come up with a you know a, a path forward. Obviously, for me, a baseline would be ending you know U.S. military aid and and logistics, spare parts, and maintenance. Um, you know, I think if that would, you know, that would be a really, uh, you know, important goal, which would prevent Saudi from really being able to operate over Yemen and do airstrikes in the same way that they could before. So it would have real impact on the ground. If they can come up with a, a solution to that, I think this is a really positive step forward. Now, here are a couple of the other silver linings I want people to uh, take away. One, we raise the profile of this issue and we raise the stakes 
for uh, Saudi Arabia in their war and blockade on Yemen. There are now, you know, so many people that know about this. We've got 130 plus co-sponsors, uh, you know, in both chambers. Now we've got, uh, you know, freshly added members in public support like uh, Senators Murphy, Paul Lee. We heard from a lot of other folks that we're going to support senior level Democrats that are ranking in many prominent committees. Uh, we just added uh, Rep. Pappas, a frontline Democrat from New Hampshire, uh, to the bill after this whole thing went down. So I see this picking up steam. And again, if Senator Sanders and the administration can't come up with a compromise, Senator Sanders should pursue the War Powers Act, which still has a very clear pathway in the 118th Congress, uh, hopefully introduce it in January and start building more support there. And I believe he's already said if, uh, you know, the Biden administration doesn't um, keep on their promise or, you know, if, if things fall through between the administration and Sanders' office, he is looking to reintroduce this resolution. I, I think he's he most likely will do it anyway. Um, he's going to do it either way. And, and, you know, again, once it's introduced, you wait the, the you know, the 15 day, you know, 15 legislative days, the bill ripens, and then it's open for a motion to discharge in the Senate that can force a, a full full vote, you know, with the whole chamber. So in regards to the Biden administration, what do you think? Um, I mean, I don't want you to have to do too much speculating here, but what do you think the move the Biden administration is making on this? I mean, I know um, a lot of activists have been trying to reach that administrative level, you know, reach out to them, the, the actual administration, which is what Bernie Sanders is doing. So that could be a development that a lot of activists um, are, are happy with. But what, what do you think the, the Biden administration's goals are with this right now? Well, I mean, let's just take a look back at what their Yemen policy, like what changed, right? And where, where things are at now and kind of look ahead. So, um, you know, the administration uh, right now, their current policy would not stop the flow of U.S. provided logistical support, maintenance and spare parts if the Saudi warplanes were to conduct more offensive operations. Biden announced an end to offensive support in early 2021. Um, but even after that, but, you know, what they told us at the time was that that meant like offensive, I think, intelligence sharing, basically targeting us, if I was going to read it, targeting assistance for offensive operations in Yemen. Um, and so that has been shut down, uh, according to the administration. And they said spare parts and maintenance were continuing. So I think, you know, what the administration basically said is that they were threatening, you know, a veto of this bill uh, on, on the notion that it would complicate and undermine the administration's ongoing efforts to finally bring an end to the war. They said a lot of stuff, but that was the, the gist of what they're saying. Let's not do this now. You know, Saudi Arabia is, you know, they're, they're complying. You know, the Houthis are now more to blame for the truce. Um, and, you know, so I think that's where their heads are at, you know, if, and I think, you know, it's, it's important to understand what the criticisms are. Um, and, you know, but it seems like President Biden also got, you know, a thumb in, in the eye from Saudi Arabia over OPEC plus 
uh, when they decided to, you know, cut oil production and, um, you know, basically manipulate global energy markets. You know, a lot of people thought that was politically motivated and a hostile action to raise fuel prices and actually empower Russia in its immoral and illegal invasion in Ukraine. And, you know, that's really just the latest demonstration of, you know, Saudi Arabia's malign activity that's, you know, hurting the United States. Uh, you know, they also murdered Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist. Uh, they had gross violations uh, of human rights at home and abroad. Um, the Biden administration called for a reevaluation of the U.S.-Saudi relationship in October and urged that Congress actually develop proposals to hold Saudi accountable. So I think they're in a tough situation right now, and that's why they reached out to uh, the Bernie Sanders office and offered a compromise because they know that this would be politically difficult for them as well. So I think there is space for a compromise. Uh, one thing, if you don't mind, I would like to also throw this out is that, you know, some of the opponents to the war powers actually argue that, you know, the Houthi government in Sana, you know, they re represent more of a significant barrier to peace due to their demand that the Presidential Leadership Council pay public salaries, uh, uh, public sector salaries, including their own fighters, as I mentioned before. Um, and these opponents argue that the peace process requires the United States and Saudi Arabia to maintain leverage, uh, you know, for the use of airstrikes to force the Houthis to accept Saudi Arabia's terms. And while we agree that the Houthis are to blame and Iran, Iran is to blame for violations of human rights in Yemen, gross violations, I should say, that are getting worse, we reject the idea that you know, the possibility of renewed airstrikes and further tightening the blockade, which have all too often killed civilians, and there's really a lot of poor tracking, represents a legitimate form of leverage that the United States should be taken part in at all. Yeah, I wanted to delve into that a little bit more. Not not specifically that issue, but any misunderstandings people may have about the War Powers Resolution uh, and the people that, that are lobbying for this, the activists that are pushing for the War Powers Resolution, because it sounds like, uh, we, we don't have to name names, but it sounds like there are some people that are acting as if there's a divide within the progressive movement to push for this War Powers Resolution. It's not just progressives, I should note. You know, there's also... Uh, people like Rand Paul, who's a Republican, who've supported the War Powers Resolution. But uh, may maybe you could talk a little bit about the misunderstandings people have and um, j just the, uh, I, I guess, the uh, progressive um, movement that, that supports this. Because I think progressives are pretty, they're supportive of this resolution in general. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean... Again, I can't speak for anybody else, you know, whenever you do something and whenever you have a coalition this big, things always get a little messy. You know, that's called democracy. That's called like moving the ball forward, in my opinion. We've had over 100,000 activists in the past couple of weeks here take action just on Yemen war powers. 100,000 plus activists. We have not seen this kind of energy from the peace movement in a long time. Over 100 national organizations. This is not just, you know, I, I like to say at the beginning of some of my presentations on Yemen, what do the Koch Institute, uh, you know, AOC, Rep Ilhan Omar, and the Raging Grannies all have in common? 
uh, or Rand Paul and Mike Lee, you know, I could keep going. They all want to end unauthorized U.S. military participation in the Saudi-led war in Yemen. A lot of people come at this from different angles, where a lot of our constitutional conservative allies, the libertarians, uh, our Mike Lees, our Rand Pauls, um, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene even supported this bill, along with Rep. Nancy Mace. They support mainly, I mean, they want to end the humanitarian crisis, but they want to end unauthorized participation. They really care about reasserting congressional war powers, where a lot of progressives, I think, you know, Rep. Ilhan Omar and, and others, uh, you know, and Rep. Jayapal, uh, you know, they support, and, and Rep. DeFazio, I should say, who's leading the effort in the House, and Senator Warren, Senator Leahy, they're all leading because, you know, they care about Article One war powers, but they also care about ending the humanitarian crisis. You know, Senator Murphy on the floor said he wanted to, you know, granted he understood that the conditions on the ground have changed in Yemen um, and that, you know, military support has changed in Yemen, but he still thought the remaining pieces of U.S. complicity, which are the logistics and the spare parts and maintenance, make us complicit. And we need to end all of this because that's immoral. There, okay, so there are some people, again, I don't think it's, you know, I think there are a few outliers that have said, well, now is not the right time. You know, we've heard other people uh, say, well, this, you know, we, this would implicate Ukraine. Uh, we, you know, we've heard some people say we're on the precipice of peace in Yemen, and so we don't want to disrupt the status quo. And I, and I think I've already addressed that. You know, I think reasonable people might be able to disagree on this. I don't, you know, I, I think there are different, you know, maybe, yeah, like different ideas and thoughts about ways to move forward. Um, you know, this coalition is is moving forward with, uh, you know, a pretty, uh, you know, firm stance that no amount of U.S. complicity, and granted, this is just one part of it, uh, you know, we also want to end weapon sales to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, we, you know, uh, we also want to, you know, repeal the 2001 AUMF to prevent the war on terror in Yemen, you know, we also want to you know, have a new UN Security Council resolution to have more balanced diplomacy, support humanitarian assistance. We want an oversight mechanism for war crimes uh, by both sides in Yemen. So there's a lot of things that we need to work on together, but there's a large and growing coalition that wants to pursue uh, the War Powers Act. Yeah, and I just wanted to add, when we talk about activists, we're not just talking about individual activists, we're talking about organizations and like major organizations that that want to see this war powers resolution go through. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and so I I think it's move on, you know, indivisible has come out in support of this bill. Uh, You know, we've got humanitarian organizations like the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation, uh, other Yemeni activists like uh, Yemeni Alliance Committee, uh, Yemen Freedom Council, um, we've got activists like Shireen Al-Ademi, uh, Bruce Rydell from Brookings has has consistently come out in support. Colonel Larry Wilkerson, who is chief of staff, chief of staff of, of um, you know the Secretary of State Colin Powell. Uh, yes, I've, you know, I've had Larry on the show before. Actually, uh, oh, he, he's really great on this issue. Yes, he, he's he's fantastic. You know, Demand Progress has played a big role in this. Groups like Just Foreign Policy and Action Corps. Uh, have been working hard. Peace Action, uh, Madre has come out in support. They're a feminist organization uh, with lots of connections to Yemenis on the ground that are working on peace building. 
um, you know, and, and other people that have, you know, said they supported it under Trump and then now they're staying silent on it. You know, I think, you know, to me, this is an open door coalition. You know, you, if you want to if you want to walk in and support, that's great. If you want to, you know, if you're not feeling it at the moment, feel free, you know, I, I think. <laughs> but this is an open door. It's a it's a movement that has you know, really good intentions and, and really an amazing community that I'm proud to be a part of. I just had one or two more questions. I, I guess the first is, and I want you to address this. I know we've sort of dealt with it earlier in the conversation, but just to get more deeply into it, I think there are people that will 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 keep pointing towards Iranian involvement and, and the Houthis, and, and they don't talk about the Saudis as much. They, they will say, uh, this is in Iran and, and the Houthis court. Um, how do you respond to those people? How would you maybe push back or, or what would the alternative perspective be? How, how would you um, answer to those people who are putting the focus mainly on the Iranians and the Houthis? Well, I, I, I would maybe my my first hat would be as a peace activist. I'd be like, well, that doesn't, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. If someone's doing something bad doesn't mean that we have to be complicit in war crimes, too. So, so that I would start there and then I'd say, OK, but let's talk about this as a serious, you know, national security person. The longer this war goes on, the deeper entrenched Iran will be. Let me repeat that. The longer this war goes on, the deeper entrenched Iran will be. So if you want to actually lessen Iranian involvement, let's work to actually end the war and find a compromise. The Houthis, since the start of this war, you know, they were five percent of the population. And then over the course of the war, they now control 80 plus percent of the country's population and, and, and 80 percent of Yemen, essentially. Now, they have deepened their entrenchment in Yemen. They've really solidified power. Um, and, you know, they're now using the narrative that U.S. involvement in the war and Saudi airstrikes and blockade are the cause of all the Yemeni people's problems. They're driving a narrative and kind of shielding themselves from, uh, you know, trying to divert people's energy away from their own failures to govern and their own human rights violations and pointing to this external uh, aggression by the Saudi led coalition, which is backed by the United States, the UK, France, Canada, etc. So, again, that's another reason to limit US military assistance, because it's driving a really powerful narrative that the Houthis have been capitalizing on. I would also say is that the Yemen war powers resolution is really narrowly targeted. We're just talking about offensive operations. Defensive operations aren't included. We could have a whole nother conversation about that. You know, that, you know, we shouldn't even sell weapons. Uh, Senator Blumenthal, when we talk to their office, they're like, hey, we're way ahead of you. We want to end military, uh, you know, get the troops out of Saudi. We want to end all the defense cooperation. And they said, well, we're going to support your bill because we, we think this is an important step forward, but we're way ahead of you, uh, you know, on the WPR and where Senator Sanders is at. So there are people that are going way further. This bill still allows for logistics, spare parts and maintenance for Saudi Arabia's defensive operations. So, hey, we're not trying to completely leave Saudi Arabia defenseless with this bill. They, they have billions in THAAD missile launchers, in SAMs, in, in, in AMRAMs, and all these you know Patriot missiles that can shoot down drones and ballistic missiles. So 
if that's your if that's your beef with it just know that this is not intended to stop saudi arabia and the uae from being able to defend themselves and we're very clear about that the, the last uh thing i wanted to get into was w- with regards to the uh withdrawing um uh, senator sanders withdrawing a war powers resolution last week I, I know we sort of talked about it before but for the people that were upset with that news or have sort of been on the attack because of it what would you say to those people that were disappointed or maybe they're having a knee-jerk sort of angry reaction? Because, I, I mean, even I maybe had that reaction at first, but what would you say to the people that are upset right now? Where would you say they should put their energies? I'm glad you brought that up, and I meant to address this earlier because I don't want to lessen the frustration. Uh, I heard from some activists that they actually were was sad enough where they actually cried. And they told me about that. And, you know, people are hungry for a change in Yemen and they want to see it now, not tomorrow, not in a month or not in a year from now. They want to see the end, uh, you know, to this conflict right now. And we already talked about this isn't going to magically end the conflict, just one piece of it. But you have a right to be frustrated at this situation. This is a horrible, horrible crisis. And trust me, I've been working on this for five years, pretty much as my like daily focus. Uh, and, you know, since 2018 and, you know, going on, you know, into 2023 now. Um, and, you know, I think feel your feelings, but also let's dust ourselves off and, you know, get back in uh, and get back into the, uh, to working on building this coalition, uh, building uh, momentum for an end to U.S. support. Let's face it. You know, our, our collective advocacy in, in combination with, you know, other people working for peace, Saudi Arabia hasn't launched an airstrike in Yemen since April. And we should, I think, you know, this peace movement should feel good about that. Uh, it's not where we want to end up, but it's progress, in my opinion. And I also think that, you know, these, these members of Congress have been trying to get the administration to at least address them seriously on, you know, on moving the ball forward on U.S. You know, participation in the war. Uh, it started off with a defazio Kana letter asking for clarifications. That got no response or, or no adequate response, in our opinion. Um, we, we got, uh, you know, the GAO report came out and said that they're not keeping track of how weapons are being used in Yemen and, and you know, even ones that are killing civilians and that they have no clear definition of offensive versus defensive. So we've got a lot of things, you know, uh, to, to work on here, but uh, I think we should, you know, feel our feelings, but then in the 118th Congress, be ready to take action because I think we're in a very good position to, to ratchet down the hostilities and, and prevent more violence. And, and the very last point I wanted to bring up, um, j- just because I think it's important, I know that the conversation we've been having, I don't want to say it can get like wonky, but you know, for people that aren't necessarily involved in like policy or that don't follow um, policy issues a- as closely, like the, the sort of average Joe, I've noticed that when I bring up things like, you know, uh, calling your, your local congressman, you know, there was that whole uh, campaign that you and others were involved in uh, to dial 1833 stop war. I know that when I would bring that up to people, they would say, oh, well, what what can calling my congressman really do? You know, they don't listen to the people anyways. Um you know, I think people have this uh, maybe cynicism about governance in the U.S. right now. So what would you say to those people who are maybe thinking, oh, what's the point? You know, how, how can we really organize? Are they really going to listen to us anyways? Uh, what would you say those people may be getting wrong about things? 
Yeah, it's another really uh, important question. So one, there are a lot of bad things happening in the world. We've got climate change. We've got the war in Ukraine. We've got hunger happening all over the place. We've got racism here in America. We've got mass shootings. We've got lack of access to healthcare, the opioid crisis, you name it. This is a tough time to be a human being. Um, and there, you know, but I would argue that there is, we have the potential here in the United States to really impact this war in Yemen, almost like no other conflict overseas that we can think of right now. Because of the, you know, the piece of U.S. complicity, because of the expedited bill, the fact that we can actually force a vote and debate in the Senate, and we have a senator that's wanting to do that with us, and it's growing in support. So there is no, you know, your small action will not just be just you. It's joining 100, now 100,000 plus people in 100 national organizations and the majority of Democrats in the House um, and Republicans and, you know, Yemeni activists leading the way, humanitarians. And, you know, you taking that small action is, is felt, you know, in a very big way. And we are on the precipice, I think, of something really big here uh, with, with um, ending U.S. complicity in the war in Yemen. And it doesn't just matter for Yemen. I'll say that, you know, by by pushing forward here, uh, you know, it certainly opens the door for other conversations about unauthorized military participation, whether it be in Syria, whether, you know, it, it be anywhere in the world, in Africa, uh, you know, uh, and, and so many other places. So such an important time to weigh in. We have a lot of momentum, and I, and I hope folks out there can join us. One eight three three stop war is a great way to just you know you know get your voice heard. It'll take you through the prompts. One eight three three stop war dot com is something that we've set up as well that has more background information. And basically, anything you need to know to take action is there. Yeah, and I, I was going to say I think one eight three three stop war and, and making that call. I think it's much more effective in a lot of ways than you know, just signing maybe some online petition. I, I think I think that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's really powerful if done in conjunction with like a lot of other activism. And, you know, if you feel like that won't make, uh, you know, a difference and or not enough of a difference and you want to do more, you know, please reach out, join an advocacy team for FCNL. Go to fcnl.org and we'll lobby with you. <laughs> we will literally, you know, we've done another thing I should say, we've done 100,000 actions, but FCNL alone has led 400 constituent lobby visits in less than a year on this issue. 400 visits. This, this coalition, this movement is not just growing on its own. It's not just growing, going, uh, you know, on its own from armchair activists uh, trying to poke holes in every little detail here uh, about how this is not going to end all, uh, you know, every every bad thing that ever happened in Yemen. But we are going there door to door and talking to members of Congress, building relationships and actually doing what a democracy is supposed to do, which is empower people. And, and so if you want to join that movement, please come come find us. Well, hey. Hassan, I want to thank you again for coming on. Parallax views. Anything else you want to say uh, just in closing? Because uh, I think we need to keep the hope up right now, uh, especially uh, during during the holiday season. You know, people shouldn't get cynical about this cause. Well, you know, I one appreciate your highlighting this issue and best of luck to you and, and you know, your podcast. I think what you're doing is great. 
Uh, happy holidays to everybody, uh, no matter where you live and no matter what you believe. Happy holidays. Um, I will say that, you know, for all the reasons I mentioned, I, I really urge that everybody work with us to help Senator Sanders, uh, you know, move this policy forward to end, uh, you know, logistics, spare parts and maintenance and offensive operations in the war in Yemen. One eight three three stop war is a great way to, to do that. Uh, you know, Google it or even just call it right now on your phone. You can hit pause on, on the podcast and, and make a quick phone call and then jump back and hit, hit play again and listen to the rest of it. Um, and, you know, we have a real opportunity here in the 118th Congress. Uh, we've got a lot of momentum, a lot of members, you know, from a diverse uh, set of backgrounds that have joined on. Uh, and so, uh, you know, please, again, uh, you know, make a call and help us, uh, you know, end U.S. complicity in the war. Thank you again, Hassan El Tayeb, for coming on Parallax Views. You got it. Next up, Deborah Dash Moore of the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization joins us to discuss Hanukkah and Jewish culture. I thought this was a worthwhile topic to pursue given recent reports of spikes in anti-Semitism in the United States. So with that in mind, let's get right to it with Deborah Dash Moore of the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very interested to be speaking with, Dr. Deborah Dash Moore of the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization. We're going to be talking about the meaning and traditions of Hanukkah, along with much, much more. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you? Very good, very good. And one of the reasons I, I wanted to have you on the show is that I, I feel like there's a lot of concern right now over spikes in anti-Semitism. So I think it's a really important time to be talking about the meaning and traditions of Hanukkah and the contributions of Jewish culture and civilization. So maybe you could talk a little bit first about uh, just the, the moment we're at with uh, this sort of these spikes in anti-Semitism and how we can combat that with more cultural understanding of, of uh, Jewish culture and civilization. Okay. Um, you know, what the moment that we're currently at in the U.S. Um, and actually really around the world, uh, not just in the U.S., but let's focus on the U.S., uh, is a moment where it's suddenly, and I say suddenly, because I think it's relatively recent, it's suddenly become legitimate to express anti-Semitic ideas and sentiments. Those ideas and sentiments were always around. They've been around for centuries, taking different shapes, depending on the time, uh, what matters to people. Uh, but the idea that you could actually say these things um, out loud um, to talk about, you know, conspiracy theories uh, uh, that connect 
connected with Jews, to talk about notions as at Charlottesville with, you know, Jews will not replace us um, and what that means and has to do with with racism, um, to let these ideas um, come out in the open is something that previously people talked about in private. There, there was a substantial period of time, really, I would say, for around 40 or so years. Um, uh, by the 1970s, 80s, 90s, when uh, most Americans, even if they thought these things, even if they said these things, nasty things about Jews, um, only talked about it to a small number of people. And as a result, the whole environment um, for Jews changed. They became more comfortable in the U.S. in terms of uh, expressing their own culture and civilization, some of which is very similar to Christian American culture and civilization, and some of which differs from Christian American uh, culture and civilization. And when you have expressions of anti-Semitism um, really you know, being unleashed, unfortunately, starting in, in 2016 with the um, uh, campaign, Trump's campaign for president, and then the four years after that, um, when you have these expressions uh, of anti-Semitism now being spread on media, and you know about media because you're part of that world, right? Um, then suddenly where Jews differ, where their culture and civilization differs from American culture and civilization becomes hugely challenging to explain to people because they already have in their heads um, a notion of what Jews are like, even if they've never really met any Jews, even if they don't know much about Jewish culture and civilization, they have a version of what it means to be Jewish in their heads. And that's really difficult to dislodge. And I just wanted to add to that, um, with, and maybe we can get into the origins of the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and civilization through this question, but um, what do you think the importance is of, you know, uh, having cultural exchange or, or uh, making understanding of Jewish culture greater uh, at times like this? So behind the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization, which is a, a, an enormous anthology project that includes lots of different expressions of Jewish culture and civilization over the centuries, behind this um, anthology project is the belief that the diversity of Jewish culture the good and the bad and the and the in between, right? <laughs> um, is worth coming to understand because Jews aren't perfect, nor are they imperfectly evil, right? They're they're a blend like most people's. And, and they're and, not a monolith either. That is correct. And they're definitely not a monolith. And this anthology, the Posen Library, has 
translation. So it's available in English for anybody who can read English. So translations of materials from over two dozen languages. I, I like to say from Amharic to Yiddish. Right? Um, so you're getting a, a real wide range of uh, ex Jewish expression and of culture uh, um, in lots and lots of different forms. And I think the assumption of the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization is that the more you come to engage with this culture, these expressions, uh, Jewish expressions, the more you come to recognize Jewish diversity and ways in which, oh, you know, they're not that different. They're different in some ways, but they're not that different. And we can um, connect with them. I, I like this piece of what Jews do, right? Maybe don't like the other piece quite so much, but, you know, um, so as you said, cultural exchange really helps to create a more rounded and uh, complete understanding of, of a person as well as the world in which they live. And that has happened a little bit on individual levels, in part through intermarriage. Intermarriage is not just of you know two people, but it, it connects their families, and their families get to know each other in different ways, and sort of often lose some of their biases and prejudices as a result. But this is a much bigger project um, in that regard. The Poston Library. And right now, um, you're doing a lot of work with regards to writings and artifacts in the library um, celebrating Hanukkah, which begins, uh, I believe, on Sunday, December 18th, the evening of uh, Sunday, December 18th, through the evening of Monday, December 26th. Uh, so maybe we could talk a little bit about, I, I know this sounds like such a basic question, but if I have uh, listeners that aren't familiar with Jewish culture, maybe we could talk a little bit about the origins of Hanukkah. So, you know, the origins of Hanukkah are, are actually very interesting and somewhat relevant to this moment because it starts as a period um, in around 167 before the Common Era, the revolt occurs, um, where a, a Seleucid king, Antiochus, wants to create measures of uniformity in, throughout his kingdom, which includes the lands of Judea where, where Jews are living. Um, and he makes changes in the temple to integrate uh, worship of um, gods that are appropriate for the Seleucids. Um, and a bunch of priests sort of go along with it. Right, Jewish priests. But there's a, a priestly family, Mattathias, and he has seven sons. Um, the leader is Judah Maccabee. Um, don't go along with it. And they start a revolt. So, you know, the revolt is against um, the the king, but also against his Jewish accomplices and the pre unwillingness of the king to recognize elements of Jewish difference. And it's a successful revolt, right? The, the Maccabees reclaim Jerusalem, they cleanse the temple, they rededicate the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and because they've been victorious, they declare this eight-day holiday. And they're basing it 
in some ways on another Jewish holiday called Sukkot, which is a holiday uh, in the fall, uh, a harvest festival of booths. Um, But they don't have much ritual associated with it. The main ritual that's associated with it is lighting candles for eight days in um, an eight-branched menorah, one to celebrate each day. So it's sometimes also called the Festival of Lights. The Book of Maccabees, where this is recounted, doesn't make it into the Bible. It's preserved, but it's not part of Hebrew scriptures, uh, sacred scriptures. And so later, rabbis aren't really comfortable celebrating a military victory. So they say, ah, you know, it was really about the rededication of the temple and there was a miracle. And the miracle was that they found only one cruise of oil, um, which was enough normally for one day. Uh, and they had to purify oil to, to light the, the light, the holy light in the temple. But it lasted eight days. And that's why we do it for eight days. So you have um, a sort of spiritualized interpretation of the holiday. It's a holiday that is celebrated basically at home. Um, There's very little um, ritual connected with the synagogue. Um, The candle lighting occurs each evening. You're supposed to put the menorah in a window so people can see it. So the light is is shared with others. And the food that's associated with it um, are foods cooked in oil. So among uh, many American Jews who hail from Eastern Europe, um, they cook potato pancakes, which are called latkes. um, And these pancakes are cooked in oil. In Israel, they cook um, donuts, also cooked in oil, uh, and they call them sufganiot. So oil becomes sort of the what greases the holiday, as it were. <laughs> and in the United States, it became a much bigger holiday than it was in the past couple thousand years, because it coincides roughly with Christmas. And since Christmas is a gift-giving holiday among Christians, Jews start to give gifts at Hanukkah as well to sort of make it somewhat parallel with Christmas. I I think it's, um, I I hope this question doesn't sound um, too curious or odd, but I I think we see um, various uh, representations of Hanukkah in in pop culture at times. And I was wondering Mm -hmm. maybe beyond those pop culture interpretations or representations of Hanukkah, what did maybe people um, miss about the holiday if they're only seeing, uh, you know, the the menorah um, in a TV show? Or what are the aspects yeah, of the Adam holiday Sandler's that people Hanukkah miss? Or Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song, right? <laughs> What's that? I said, or Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song, right? right That's right. a pop culture right representation. Okay, so what are they missing? Um, they're missing some of the games that are played. Um, so back in, you know... A couple centuries ago, they started uh, gambling games, um, and that you have a dreidel, which is um, has four sides, and it's a top. You know, you spin it, um, and 
you gamble on it. And so there are there are coins. Now, instead of using real coins, people use uh, chocolate coins that are coated, you know, silver or gold foils, right? So they have the, the coins and they, they gamble uh, on the dreidel. And the dreidel has four Hebrew letters. And to make it less secular, the letters are given a sort of a religious interpretation that says Neskadol Hayasham, a great miracle happened there, right? But it started out really as a gambling game and it continues. So that's one of the things that people don't see, uh, particularly in pop culture. Um, there's a lot of music also, not just uh, Adam Sandler's song. Uh, and it, it, it's a time for... Uh, um, family and friends to get together. It's it's basically a very joyous holiday because unlike m major Jewish holidays, which have all kinds of prescriptions and what you can do and what you can't do, Hanukkah doesn't have these kinds of prescriptions that you, you can't do certain things. And so it's great. You know, you can just enjoy yourself, right? Yeah. So it's interesting. I, I know that there's a lot of different writings and artifacts in the Posen Library. Uh, one of the ones I wanted to cover was uh, th there's a few children's books, uh, yes. like her show on the Hanukkah Goblins by Eric A. Kimmel, and I believe um, the Runaway Latkes. So could yes. you talk about those children's books? Sure. So Hanukkah, I should say, has been very popular among kids, right? A home base, good food, lighting candles. Okay. Um, and um, getting candy coins. So uh, the Latkes, the Runaway Latkes, is a, a great book. It's about the family. They all get together. And um, three of the Latkes jump out of the frying pan, right? And they proceed to to run away. And everybody in the family is chasing them back because they're their latkes. And they are on the verge of running, rolling, you know, of course, because they're round latkes are, rolling into the applesauce river. And then a miracle occurs and it turns into applesauce and not a river. So it doesn't get all soggy. <laughs> So, you know, it's it's a very fun um, story. The the goblin story is a little darker. It's about goblins who've come to steal Hanukkah and, and terrorize the villagers. And this one brave villager, Herschel, decides he's going to outwit the goblin, uh, the chief goblin, in fact, and so he sets out the menorah and he puts in all the candles and he doesn't put it in the window. Right? He, he puts it inside. So the goblin's going to have to come into the house and the chief of the goblins comes and he's terrifying. And the Herschel says, you know, it's really dark in here. Maybe you'd like a light so I could see you a little better. So he lights the first candle. And then, uh, and, and he lights it with what's called the shamas, which is a sort of servant candle. And, and then the Herschel says, a little more light would be good. And eventually he tricks him into lighting all of the candles. At which point, you know, the goblin says, I'm going to destroy you, right? And Herschel says, no, you can't, because all the Hanukkah lights have been lit and you have lost your powers. And it's, you know, it, it's a really... Um, fun tale in the sense of, 
you know, how does one persist in the face of danger and the power of the, the Hanukkah lights in that regard? So, yeah, we, are, we, have, we have a selection from sort of the, the highlight, the key moments, but they've got great both buildup and, and denouement as well. Yeah. I, I also wanted to ask about the um, uh, Shanika in the, in the Ghetto by um, Oscar Rosenfeld. Um, because that sounds like it, it it's I mean it delves into darker territory, but I think it's a an important artifact. Yeah, so um I should mention which I didn't say first about the children's um uh literature is that this is a genre, Jewish children's literature, that's really relatively new. It's it comes up in the 20th century. So uh, that's why it's part of Jewish culture and civilization and why it's included. Um, uh, in the Posen Library. That's a, a sign of the Posen Library's diversity. The the other story takes place in the Warsaw Ghetto, right? Um, and it, it's um, pinning hopes for the end of the war, the end of the ghetto, um, and the power of lighting these candles. And one of the things that the story lets us recognize, uh, you know, in a, a, a true, more true to life than the children's version with the goblins, is that um, lighting the candles themselves gave hope to Jews, even at very dark times. And Jews did light candles in the, the Warsaw Ghetto, and they did place them in the windows, even though it was potentially a very dangerous thing to do. So uh, this is a reminder of the power of holding on to the, the possibility of a miracle. Right. Um, although, in fact, there was there were no miracles in the Warsaw Ghetto, but but it's a it's a sign of the intensity of, of Jewish spirit. Yeah. Well, yeah, there, there's this spirit of um, persevering, surviving and overcoming that really pervades uh, the right. culture and a lot of the uh, just everything you've covered in the Posen Library, not just with regards to Hanukkah, but more generally. Yes. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And um, and. and Sometimes it's very moving. Sometimes it's a little um, depressing, <laughs> um, but it's I think uh, a real tribute to um, the the willingness of Jews to go on even in the face of uh, persecution and hardship. I know uh, one of the other things that the library has is a uh, different Hanukkah lamps. Yes. Um, going from yes. like the 1770s to, you know, uh, just different eras. So what what can we learn from looking at all these different uh, Hanukkah lamps um, and, and just the different eras they were made in? So that's I'm so glad you asked that, because um, it's the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization is not just text. It includes wonderful uh, examples of visual culture, you know, painting and photography and uh, sculpture, but also these ritual items uh, like the, the Hanukkah um, menorahs. And they 
really reflect the ones that you we have are made of silver and they reflect wonderful craftsmanship. Um, some of them are actually made by uh, Christian craftsmen for Jews. Some are made by Jewish craftsmen. And the 17th century one, for example, is really um, baroque in its um, design. It's a, it's a it's flat and with um, all kinds of of intricate ornamentation. And then you get one, you know, from the nineteenth century that reflects changing tastes. You know, more romantic in its in its movement. I happen to really love the twentieth century one that is just these thin silver arms for each of the um of, of the menorah eight of them that are that are thin hammered silver and very elegant and and graceful uh which reflects of course modernism and how it changed so when you look at them together what you're seeing are the ways in which um, the tastes of the the culture, the larger culture, get incorporated into Jewish culture. And Jewish culture is doesn't have walls around it by any means. It it interacts with whatever society Jews are are living in. So uh, this isn't necessarily related to Hanukkah, but I think we could find a way, way to relate it back. But um, one things one of the things I've always admired. Uh, about Jewish com uh, culture is uh, their influence on comedy and humor. Uh, you know, I think most people know, you know, Seinfeld and and things like that. But I've always been a big fan, even of like stand up comics like Lenny Bruce and the, and Mort Saul, uh, who were very you know important comedians, stand up comedians in the nineteen uh, sixties and whatnot. So maybe we could talk a little bit about um, Jewish humor and just the because I, I think the history of it's kind of interesting. I know that. Posen Library actually has a lot on this. Maybe it even connects to some of the um, uh, artifacts about Hanukkah as well. So, okay, Jewish humor is something that we definitely have in the Posen Library. I mean, the section of the Posen Library that talks about the Holocaust has all kinds of jokes that Jews told during the Holocaust, which is a really, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine humor at that time. But Jews found ways of using humor. I mean, it, it connects with what you were saying about perseverance, right? Um, there. So uh, humor it, it, it has been, especially, I would say, you know, in the US, um, a lot of Jews, you mentioned Lenny Bruce, Mort Saul, Seinfeld, I mentioned Adam Sandler, um, you know, a, a whole host of of comics, women comics as well, um, have found in American popular culture opportunities um, to use humor to comment on society. Um, and they do it in ways that even if you're the object of, you know, that are being being laughed at, you, you laugh too. I mean, in the 21st century, we had John Stewart, we had, right? I mean, um, others who, you know, he was he was doing a news show, but he was making it funny. And I think that what it comes out of is this a 
a measure of irreverence in Jewish culture, right? I mean, as much as, you know, you have all these 613 commandments that you're supposed to follow and whatnot, um, it's also stimulates questions, right? Jews are encouraged to, to ask questions and to answer questions with more questions. So, which I haven't done with you. <laughs> You've asked me a question. I haven't answered with a question. But that leads to um, uh, the willingness to be irreverent and to uh, use humor to get at insights, uh, to let people sort of see what what it's like to be an outsider, but who also has access to certain things inside. And I think that sort of positioning that you have with humor is something that um, is really important. I, you know, I, if I can digress very briefly. I've just finished teaching a course on um, history of American Jews, and I had a, a um, another a uh, scholar, he's a scholar of, of American Jewish literature, Josh Lambert, come to class. He was visiting Ann Arbor and he did a class on Jewish humor and he spoke about the origins of stand up comedy and where it came from. And he had traced it basically to a, an effort on the part of, of a Jewish teacher to try to work to develop dialogue. And her dialogue techniques were then adopted by people like Elaine May and then Mike Nichols, right, who used that because uh, the initial kind of, of improv that went into stand-up was an important piece of it. So, you know, they somebody would throw out something um, from the audience and they would figure out how to dialogue with it, the improvisation. Uh, it, was, it was a really interesting uh, uh, discussion to recognize that um, improv and, and stand-up had roots that weren't necessarily in humor, but became a vehicle for, um, for humor, you know? Yeah, I was just going to add to that, too. One of the things that I've always loved about um, Jewish humor and also just Jewish culture generally uh, that I've had an admiration for is, um, you know, you, you mentioned the irreverence, but I also think it, there's just a, a culture of curiosity um, within within Jewish civilization itself and, you know, a, a, a sort of willingness to question uh, sacred cows and, and maybe um, sometimes question those sacred cows, make fun of them. And I, I think that that's something very powerful and uh, very necessary for any culture. Sometimes we have to question ourselves and the society around us. And I think that's uh, very much a big part, that curiosity and sort of playful questioning of, of uh, you know, cultural mores is very apparent um, in a lot of Jewish civilization. Yes, I think that is one of its its characteristics. Um, it can get you into trouble sometimes, but you know that's it. Certainly got Lenny Bruce into trouble. Right? Um, uh, you know his well his use of profanity too was another piece of it. Back then, you couldn't you couldn't use curse words. So, you know, I, I want to um, also talk a little bit about this. I know we talked about. Um, that piece, um, Shanika in the ghetto. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's important to talk about things like the Holocaust, but I also think at times um, 
I don't want people to forget that there's more uh, to Jewish culture and civilization than just that incident. And I, at the same time, I don't want to downplay that incident, but uh, do you think sometimes um, we miss other aspects of Jewish culture and how can we talk more about the, the, the you know, the positive, um, you know, the, the things beyond just that dark moment of the Holocaust? So that's a really very good question. And um, it's one that's, that's difficult to answer um, at this point in time, in part because um, the Holocaust has continued to reverberate throughout our culture. Um, and it has, provi- I mean, right, it, it produces the concept of genocide which didn't exist before the Holocaust. And that's something specifically Jewish about genocide. Um, It can happen to other peoples, but it it comes out, just an example, it comes out of the the Holocaust. So Jews have uh, certainly managed to um, rebuild and to create new ways of being in the world um, since the Holocaust, Um, uh, new ways in part because of the engagement uh, of Jewish women with feminism, um, that that has stimulated enormous creativity. I mean, it's not just that you have women now able to become rabbis, but these women have gone back to sacred texts, right? They've gone back to the five books of Moses, to the Torah, um, and reread it and reinterpreted it in ways that are bringing us whole new modes of understanding. Um, And that, I think, um, is really quite significant um, in terms of today's culture. I mean, among the things that really uh, generates uh, new ideas, new ways of being in the world comes from this uh, Jewish feminist um, encounter with with what some people probably thought, oh, well, that's that's sort of set. But of course, you know, the invitation to engage with what is sacred um, is always open. Um, and uh, these these. Jewish feminists have have indeed brought us some wonderful stories, um, interpretations. They're called midrash, um, for example, new interpretations of uh, uh, of, of the Genesis story right? of the um, Adam's first wife. Right? Did you know Adam had a first wife, right? Lilith? <laughs> okay, um, and what she uh, you know says to Adam and and everything, and then how she leaves the garden and then she sort of comes back and she starts talking with Eve. And, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a great midrash um, that just sort of lets us think like, oh, okay, let's imagine there was, you know, uh, another woman there. So uh, those have been some of the ways, I think, um, at least in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, you've had some really great and new and different um, uh, it, forms of Jewish culture being um, expressed. Yeah. 
I just had a, a few more questions here, if you have the time. Um, sure. One thing I wanted to ask about, g- given this moment that we're in, where we're seeing spikes in anti-Semitism, um, you know, I, I'm just curious, why do we see resurgences in, in anti-Semitism? And, and what I mean by that is, you know, I, I come from like an, an Italian background. So, you know, I my grandparents would tell me about how, you know, uh, Italian Americans were often mistreated um, in, in the earlier parts of the 20th century. You know, even mm-hmm. when JFK came into office, people would uh, say, oh, he's going to have dual loyalties to the Vatican. Uh, but it seems like that's died down for a lot of Italian Americans and Irish Americans. So why why does the lie about um, the, the sort of libel against Jewish people continue on uh, when some of these other um, bigotries have, have uh, maybe died down a little bit? Well, that's a very difficult question to answer. Um, Why does it continue? I think it continues because it's a anti-Semitism has the ability to to morph, um, to change its shape slightly and to attach itself to new things in the, the culture. Um, you don't actually have to have Jews to have anti-Semitism. It it serves very useful purposes in terms of forming a group identity, in terms of providing explanations about why bad things are happening. Um, uh, Conspiracy theories are, are really great to explain stuff that you don't understand. Um, we've just, we're still actually not quite out of it, you know, had a pandemic. Um, and how do you explain it? Well, you know, anti-Semitism has a means to explain it. Uh, you know, the fact that some of those means sound very similar to how Christians explained the Black Death, right? <laughs> Back in the, you know, uh, 1500 or so years ago, um, it, is an indication of the way in which, um, in that case, Jew hatred, Judeophobia, you know, gets reemerges because it's serving valuable social functions that that help people cope with stuff that they don't understand. And I think, you know, what you're describing in terms of anti-Italian bias or anti-Irish bias, which was very strong at at one point um, in the United States um, because of the Protestants really didn't like- You you cut out there for um, a moment. Catholics. Um, You you were saying- um, Oh, I'm uh, sorry. Because of- uh, you, you okay, said because Italian-American. anti-Irish and anti-Italian bias was very strong in the U.S. because Protestants really didn't like Catholics, right? I mean, and, you know, so the, the ethnicity piece was combined with it. Well, you know, Protestants and Catholics now get along much better um, in the U.S. so that that um, basis for conflict and, you know, I mean, Italian Americans were lynched in New Orleans, right? I mean, there were there were horrible things that were were done um, uh, to them. It's it's different because with Judaism, it, this is a non Christian faith, um, and it's it doesn't accept certain 
basic Christian premises. Um, and it, at the same time, it, it's a Jews have lived among Christians for you know, thousand plus years. So there's all kinds of older forms of disliking Jews that can potentially be resurrected. Um, even when, you know, formal church, you know, disavows, right? Like the, the charge of deicide or something like that and says, no, you know, in fact, Jews didn't kill um, Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to add to that. I like how you put that, that um, anti-Semitism, it, it almost can morph and take different forms. You know, uh, there, there, there's been Catholic bigotries against um, Jewish people in the past. And then we have, you also have the conspiracy theory element, right? Like, oh, they're trying to destroy the church or, you know, with the Nazis, it was, oh, it, Jewish people are, are trying to, they're, they're, they're trying to uh, bring about the communist revolution. And it, it, it's all sort of just, um, different variations on the same sort of Correct. conspiratorial uh, ideation. Right, right. So, you know, you have, for example, um, people talking about Jews controlling an industry, but you never have people talking about, you know, who controls the automobile industry, right? Why don't you talk about that? Well, because there are no Jews involved. So, you, you, you know, you're not interested in who controls that industry or who control, right? It's, it, it, it's um, a very useful um notion this these conspiratorial notions it's yeah. also a form of scapegoating you know it can take our yes. eyes off uh, who's really behind a problem you know? that's correct that's correct yeah yeah so yeah. before we close out um you know i i guess one thing i wanted to ask you is uh, what do you think one of the biggest misunderstandings people still have uh, about jewish culture what do you think the biggest misunderstanding a lot of people have i, I know there's many but that's a hard question um, I have to, I, I try thinking about my students who come into class and what they don't know. Um, but since they're coming into class, they are eager to know, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, they're, they're there to learn. So that, that's not quite right. Um, I, th I think that... Probably the the biggest misunderstanding that um, people have about Jews um, is the way in which they can't quite figure out how you get from the Israelites of the Bible to contemporary Jews um, who you know may live around the corner. Um, and they just, they seem to be two utterly different worlds, utterly different peoples, and yet, in fact, they are related. And I, I think people, people don't understand how they're related, how through, you know, the, the centuries of history, the creativity that Jews had in terms of managing to come up with new modes of 
being in the world, new forms of religious expression, right? All these allowed for Jewishness and Jews to continue up to the present day. They've always been, Jews have always been a very small, you know, minority um, uh, in the world population. Um, and yet uh, they've been visible in ways, in part because of the Bible, um, but also in part because often they're the most visibly different people, um, you know, in in a society that's m more relatively homogeneous. Now, I, that's not exactly true in the U.S. because the U.S. we have lots of visibly different people, right? But certainly, you know, in in Europe and. Um, uh, other Christian societies, uh, Jews, Jews stuck out that way, and that was hard to hard to figure out how 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 do they keep going, right? Yeah. So, in closing, here, um, in regards to everything we've been talking about, and with Hanukkah coming up, uh, what do you hope that listeners get out of the conversation we've been having? I know we went all over the place, but I, I feel like I I hope listeners will get a greater understanding out of the holiday and just uh, Jewish contributions to culture. Uh, but what do you hope they get out of this conversation? What do you hope they get out of the uh, Post Library? Well, I hope that they're sufficiently intrigued to learn more about Jewish culture and civilization because postandlibrary.com, if you go to it and register, it's free. I mean, you can just browse through all of this material you know, without paying anything um, and see what you find and see what you think. They're all original sources. They're all, you know, chosen by uh, scholars, excerpts, um, very diverse. As I said, lots of translations of from lots of different languages. Um, and that Hanukkah um, is this opportunity to um, maybe come to know your Jewish neighbor a little bit better, right? Um, and to recognize that there are a lot of ways, actually, of celebrating in the darkness of December. The Festival of Lights, which is another name for Hanukkah, um, is a way of bringing light during during dark times. It's Judaism's not the only religion that does this, of course. Um, you know, you have it among uh, among Hindus. You have uh, 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 certainly among Christians as well. And uh, you know, it's a way of uh, coming to recognize how difference and similarity can coexist at the same time. Yeah, and I, I just want to say I think that's a really important point because I think um, there are differences that exist between different cultures. At the same time, I, I think we all have to recognize, like, well, we're all human. And in fact, we do have a lot of the same similar hopes and, and dreams and just basic human desires, even if we do have uh, certain cultural differences. And I think that's uh, one of the things that the Posen Library actually, I think, gets people to realize. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it does. I, I hope so. That's uh, and thank you very much. That's that would be really great. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you again, Deborah Dashmore, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners uh, keep up with the work you're doing and the work of the Posen Library? 
So as I said, posenlibrary.com, um, if you go to it, register. Um, I also write an occasional email. Um, I just wrote one about Jewish food, in fact, <laughs> uh, which is sort of appropriate for the holiday uh, period. And you can sign up for the email to stay in touch that way. Um, and I have a, um, excuse me, a website at the um, University of Michigan where I, I teach, so. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Hassan El Taeb and Deborah Dash Moore. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say "Don't do it," just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.